Amen. What a sweet time of worship. It's a, it's a little bit unfair to have to sing good, good father while you're holding one of your good, good father's precious gifts from above. So um, trying to hold it together here as I think about as well all the many wonderful fathers who this morning are experiencing the first Father's Day in the Father's arms um, as we come to celebrate them as well and think through um, uh, their experience today. But he is indeed good, isn't he, church? And so if you would, we're going to celebrate the goodness of God this morning by turning in Psalm 11, continuing in our series, Joy Seeker. Um, I had a, a one, Psalm 100, what did I say? 11. Oh, nice. Well, that's a good start. Psalm 100, uh, reading verse 1. And so uh, I want to say thank you for allowing me to go and preach at Amelia Baptist Church last week. The first time I got the experience preaching at my brother's church. That's a very sweet church. They're not as sweet as y'all. Um, but uh, I missed being here so, so deeply. But I was, I was um, encouraged uh, to, to worship with our saints. And I'm so thankful, Pastor Justin, uh, for stepping up. And man, did he deliver a knockout sermon. That was, a, that was an incredible word. So how great is it, by the way, that the pastor um, can be here. Uh, it doesn't have to be here for us to have not only people join our church and welcoming in church family, but to deliver God's word. I, that's, listen, this is the model ministry that we have here. It is not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus, uh, thankfully, has given us multiple shepherds to uh, be able to, to lead in worship. And so I'm thankful for uh, the incredible man of God that he is and all his work with us. As, as always, as well, hopefully you got your Lord's Supper packet. We'll be celebrating um, this ordinance after the service, and so I um, encourage you to do that. All right, let's consider more of this matter of joy in the Lord, specifically how it applies to what we are doing right here this morning in worship. Would you stand with me for the reading of Psalm 100, starting in verse 1. Psalm 100, we'll be reading all five verses, a psalm of thanksgiving. Here's what it says. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Our Father in heaven, we would come before you and your gates into your courts being such people of Psalm 100. Lord, we, we long for joy to characterize our worship and all of our service toward you. So we pray that you would again instruct us, direct us, as you've commanded us to come and rejoice. We pray that you would give us grace and we pray especially for the power of your Holy Spirit by whose power alone we are able to bear this fruit of divine joy in the Lord. It's in Christ's name we ask, amen. Amen, thank you, you may be seated. Have you ever had lies told about you? That's not a very fun thing, is it? Yet, you are in good company because the Lord has lies told about him 
all the time and has from the very beginning. In fact, the word devil literally means slanderer. And from the beginning of time, the devil has been engaging in an aggressive slander campaign against the Lord. You remember the original temptation, don't you, when he suggested to Adam and Eve that God was withholding something from them, something that would make them happy, that God was withholding from them by forbidding them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you know that the devil has not changed his scheme whatsoever? He's still doing the same thing. He's telling us things like, God is opposed to you enjoying yourself and God is opposed to pleasure and, and that sin will ultimately bring you pleasure. He convinced that couple that they would find true satisfaction, true joy, true happiness by listening to him instead and sinning. He's telling us you cannot have happiness and holiness at the same time. Well, what do we say to that in response? Well, the Bible does admit freely that, that sin can bring pleasure for a season, maybe very intense short-term pleasure, but always, it will always bring long-term misery and pain. But, but it's equally honest that following the Lord may at times bring short-term difficulties and pain, but will always, always bring lasting joy and pleasure. See, contrary to what many people think or even expect, the Bible consistently appeals to the need we have for deep and lasting pleasure. Psalm 34 verse 8 tells us this. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's an invitation for you to enjoy God. To come near and learn the truth about the one who brings the greatest joy and gladness. Psalm 1611, our memory verse, is also about experiencing joy and pleasure in God. It says, in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, the pursuit of God is the pursuit of joy and pleasure and, and sadly, Many people don't get this. They disassociate joy and gladness in heart from God. They think that following Christ is something like eating your vegetables. Doesn't taste very good, but if you just endure it and swallow it down, eventually it'll be good for you. Well, I remind you of the quote I gave two weeks ago from C.S. Lewis. I don't think he was overstating the point at all when he said it is the Christian's duty for everyone to be as happy as they can. Do you believe it? Amen. I pray that at the end of this summer series, you will. In fact, many places in God's word, God says that the opposite. Uh, he shows us the opposite as well. He tells us all throughout the Bible of the misery and sadness that comes from those who don't draw near to him. So let's briefly recap what we've learned over these past two weeks throughout this summer series. We've learned that joy and gladness and heart are not unimportant themes in the Bible. Repeatedly in the law of God, the Lord calls his people to serve him with joy and gladness in heart. The Psalms are just chock full of this. We read in Psalm 43 verse 4, as, as Brother Levi already read, to God, my exceeding joy. 
We're told in Psalm 32, verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Jesus spoke of this as well. He spoke of it to his disciples in John 15, where he says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and your joy may be full. He promised on judgment day that those who served him faithfully will hear those words enter into the joy of your Lord. By which, of course, he means eternal joy that's found in heaven. The Apostle Paul even repeatedly gives us causes for our rejoicing and even urges us in Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He tells the Corinthians and the Philippians that he is a worker with them for their joy. What an interesting phrase that is, by the way workers for your joy. I am working for your joy with you. Paul also lists joy as second only to love and the fruits of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit produces in all believers. Even in Revelation, it's there. The last book of the Bible pictures the saints throughout history saying in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. So listen to me. At the core of the Christian life is this pursuit of real, deep, everlasting, all-satisfying joy in the Lord and rejecting the lie that serving God brings us misery. Many Christians view the Christian life primarily in terms of duty and obedience. And listen, these are important virtues, but the problem is it's not joy or obedience. It's not joy or duty. And, and people believe that these are in opposite directions. Just think about it. And even if they say they don't, they act like they do. How many people believe or show that duty and obedience are in the same direction as joy and happiness? How many Christians view the pursuit of joy and delight in God as a primary responsibility? This is why we say what we need, what the Bible calls, what we need is what the Bible calls a new heart, a new birth. We need to be converted to be made alive in Christ. We have this natural mind and heart that are dead to the things of God. So he says, you must be born again. God says to take out that heart of stone and put in a tender heart towards him, to put his own spirit within us so we will love the Lord and walk in his ways. This is the spirit that brings us not only love, but joy. We read last time from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, whom having not seen, you love. And though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And here's what we said last week. If this is what you need, if you recognize that this is what you need, I can't give it to you. If you recognize this is what you need, you can't even give it to yourself. But there is one who has promised from the beginning to the end of Scripture that he is able to make that change in your life. And what you need to do is you need to call out to God and say, I recognize that I need a new heart and I recognize that you're the only one that can give it to me. And the beauty is that Jesus assures us everyone who asks receives and he who seeks will find. 
And so today we apply this matter of joy in the Lord specifically to worship. And friends, that's, that shouldn't be really hard for us to do, should it? So I've got four points in your outline here this morning. We're going to walk through these and walk through our text as well. First, I want us to see that all our worship should be corporate rejoicing. It's the first thing I want you to see. Every bit of our worship should be corporate rejoicing. Do you view worship in that way? Did you come here this morning to rejoice? See, clearly in verse 1, this is how this call to worship starts. It starts with joy. It calls for joy. In verses 1 and 2, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you land. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Is that your idea of worship? Because I assure you, it's God's idea of worship. Time and again in the law, God calls his people to come before him and rejoice. It's seven times in Deuteronomy alone. You must come before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice. And, And so listen, if you had to put in a single word what worship is, it's rejoice. Rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing together before the Lord. This is what the Bible calls worship. I think the second most famous call to worship is found in Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. On the other hand, worship that is lacking joy and that is without deficient of gladness in heart, God says repeatedly, is unacceptable in his sight. Totally unacceptable. Quoting Isaiah in Isaiah 29, 13, he says, Inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. Here's something I see as a, as a problem often. As we gather together, a congregation often considers itself to be the audience in worship. We watch the worship leaders, we watch the musicians or the ministers give their presentation or performance. But you know, nothing could be further from true biblical worship. In worship, God is the audience. The people come before him and rejoice. That is to say, as as the congregation rejoices, the audience is pleased or he's not. And the real audience is God and joyful worship is what we offer to him for his glory. Now, of course, such worship blesses us as well. We know this. That's the point of this series. When we do it the right way, it fills our heart with joy. True worship and joy are in the same direction. But in worship, we are invited into his presence where there is fullness of joy. And so if we had to choose a single word to describe worship, what it means when we come before him, we are to do so with the word rejoice. Now, some of you might ask, okay, isn't worship more than just joy? If we just have joy, then does it matter what we do? Well, remember, God has given us directions. All true worshipers are sincere, though not all who are sincere are true worshipers. 
Many people are sincerely wrong, I suppose, not worshiping the true God in the way he has described. Certainly that was God's dealing with Israel for a long period of time, wasn't it? On the other hand, sometimes we think we have pure worship if we're singing songs and thinking, well, these words are inspired. It must be pure worship, but that's not right at all. If we want to have pure worship, we need a lot more than words that are pure. We need pure hearts. True worshipers are those who worship in spirit and in truth. And I'm simply saying, when you ask what worship is, and you were to put it in a single word, it is joy. It is rejoicing. But just to appease you, I'll give you a couple more definitions here also. You can find these in your notes online as well if you need the outline. John MacArthur writes this. He says, worship is our innermost being responding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, and words based on the truth of God as he has revealed himself. William Temple, I think I've given both of these definitions before actually, he gives this interesting definition though somewhat older. William Temple says to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. So, so yes, there is a lot to worship, but again, the Bible has a lot to say about worship, but if I wanted to describe it in a single word, the word the Bible uses is joy, rejoicing in God. That brings me to my second point. If all of our worship is to be corporate rejoicing, then secondly, all are commanded to rejoice in God. See, this is not simply a suggestion for you. This is a command to rejoice in the Lord. Uh, look at these verses again, verses 1 and 2, and, and read these as commands because they are commands. These are imperatives. Look at what the psalmist says. He says, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. And so maybe you hear that and you just think, well, you know what? That's simply just not my personality. Well, you misunderstood the Bible does not say, make a joyful noise, all those who have exuberant personalities. The Bible says, make a joyful noise, who? All the earth, all the lands. See, we think of joy as something we have or have not, and that's not right. The Bible does not speak of joy in that way at all. Joy, like peace, like love, like patience, and so on, are Christian graces which we are to develop. In fact, the Bible is full of instruction on how to cultivate these graces, how to increase them and exercise them in our day-to-day -day lives. It says we should pray for them and we should practice them. Therefore, the Bible is not shy about commanding us to be joyful. That means you don't have to be a joyless people. You don't have to be without joy, not when joy is the fruit of the spirit that is in you. This joy that we're talking about, it's not much to do with temperament or even circumstance. It is called joy in the Lord. Therefore, it is both possible and highly necessary for believers to have this joy. And if that's the case, friends, then joylessness is a sin and joy is a duty. 
A privilege to be sure, but it's also our responsibility, a sacred obligation, a command that Christians are told to practice. Now listen, some people, I freely admit, are more able to find joy naturally, more naturally than others, okay? They are by nature more cheerful people, and you know exactly who I'm talking about. They are inclined to brightness and gladness. Some people have temperaments that are more melancholy. God has made us all differently, I admit. And I can put it this way. God doesn't expect us all to be tiggers. Nor does he expect us to resign ourselves if we are in fact Eeyores. We are not to be glum. Spiritual joy is simply not a function of the natural personality. Spiritual joy is a matter of cultivation in the soul of this Christian grace and obedience to God. A joy that is found in him. See, there's this conversation that we find all throughout the Psalms when the psalmist is down. When he's having a hard day or he's just bummed out. For instance, Psalm 43 verse 5, David says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. See, there's this movement in the Psalms from uh, where the soul is by nature lifting up, raising up the soul by the grace of God. And all the Psalms except one, you will find this same movement, even though there are more lamentations in the Psalms than any other place in the Bible. They start down, but all but except one, Psalm 88, they end with rejoicing and joyful praise to God. This is the work that joy requires. For instance, Psalm 13, 1, David cries out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He describes his ongoing sorrow and the causes of it. And then at the end of that short psalm, he affirms God's loving kindness and God's goodness to him. He says in verse 5, he concludes, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. It's a joy that has nothing to do with temperament or circumstances. See, his circumstances haven't changed by the end of that psalm. But what's happened is he has lifted his eyes from looking at his own navel up to God. And now his disquieted soul has new measures of joy in the Lord. Supremely in worship. God wants his people to practice this joy. Each of us must experience together so that it overflows corporately. Come together before him and rejoice. That's the command. Now I realize that many of us come into worship with every sort of distraction you can think of. And perhaps in many cases, pain, sorrow, that we are bowed down with the difficulties of this life. Friends, it is only right that here we are to lift up our eyes and to remember the source of purest pleasure. The source of our joy, which is not in our circumstances, nor in our temperament. We are to come into the presence of the Father who has promised us that he will carry through. He will carry us through our sorrows. He will sanctify those sorrows for and to our good. And he will ultimately turn all of those sorrows into an eternal weight of glory. Worship is coming together in his presence 
to rejoice. And friends, that is a command. Third, therefore, all of our, stop me if you've heard this before, worship, growth, and service to the Lord should be joyful. All of our worship, growth, and service to the Lord should be joyful. In verse 2, most translations have serve the Lord. I think ours does. Other translations may have worship the Lord. And at the end of verse 2, we have singing. Others have with joyful songs. But the point is clear. We are to come into his presence and bring him joy in everything. I'll speak more about our service to others in the following weeks. But let me just ask you, I'll just tell you, if our worship here is lackluster, if our singing is lackluster, if our desire for growth and to attend Sunday school on Wednesday night is lackluster, if our desire to serve when we hear of a need is lackluster, I can only presume that it's because you and I have forgotten that we're offering it to the Lord. That's, that's the only thing. Listen to me. If worship is a joyless duty, then that's all it is. I say again, many Christians view the Christian life primarily in terms of duty and obedience. But how many Christians view the pursuit of joy as part of their obedience? Uh, this last week was a perfect example. We, uh, she's not even here, so I'm going to embarrass her. Um, but uh, last week we were set uh, to go to Amelia Island and Saturday night we had to break the news to our kids. Of course, I told you last two weeks ago how much my kids enjoy their cousins, right? favorite people in the world. So we told our kids we were going to go to Uncle Adam and uh, Aunt Joji's church and to see their cousins. And Emmett's first response was, will my Joyce be there? Now, if you know what that means, it means his Miss Joyce, who have, has taught Sunday school along with Jojo for, uh, Miss Joyce has been in there for many, many years. Um, in fact, she was there with Addie. She's been there with Emmett. And listen, that's his Joyce. <laughs> he loves that woman. And you can't tell me that that has nothing to do with the fact that if you know, know Joyce Chevalier, you know someone who rejoices in the Lord always. And, and I, I, I just wonder, when we come up here and we talk about, A, the, the heartbrokenness we have when people attend other things besides worship. And listen, it's not because we shame anybody. It's because we know you're missing out on your pathway to joy. When we talk about the need for you to be involved in a small group at a Sunday school, we know it's for your joy. <laughs> when there's a need listed in the bulletin for someone to serve, it's for your joy. How disconnected are we from those things? How often do we hear those things and we simply think, burden, burden, just another thing? Friends, oh, how we need to know that all of our worship all of our growth, all of our service is to be rejoicing in the Lord. John Piper tells of a man, an afternoon he shared with a man by the name of Joseph Son, Romanian minister who suffered terribly under the communist regime there. One topic they were discussing was having joy in the midst of suffering. And, and this man was well qualified to instruct John Piper. So Sohn told about the day that the communist authorities came to his house to confiscate nearly all his books. The soldiers wanted the proof that they were getting all the books for him, so they had him sit down at a desk and write his name in each and every book that they took from his house. 
They took pictures of him doing this all the while. At one point in the process, Sohn took down a book and the title of the book was Joy Unspeakable and Full of Glory. The subtitle, Is This Your Experience Now? He read the title and Sohn asked himself the question, Is this my experience now? And it caused him to remember the Lord and his heart was so flooded with the joy of the Holy Spirit that he immediately was no longer afraid. He was no longer angry. He even asked his wife if they would, she would get the soldiers a cup of coffee. Because yes, he is having to suffer loss. But what did he have in the Lord? See that next week, the pastor Sohn had to prepare a message for his church, had to prepare a sermon. And his congregation knew not only did he lose every bit of his study material and his, his books, but he'd been harassed all week long by the soldiers there and had little to no time to prepare a sermon. So he spoke that day on Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Brother Bob, you know that one, don't you? Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And right as he announced his title, there was a man there in his congregation who was so overwhelmed just by the announcement of the title and his text, by the sheer force of joy in the midst of his suffering, that he didn't hear anything after the title and text. He just broke down weeping right then and there and was deeply changed. Again, we need to remember all of our growth, all of our worship, all of our service, all of our singing. We are to have the joy in the Lord. That even if everything in this life is stripped away, all these things that we hold dear, we have him and therefore we have great cause to rejoice. While in prison being tortured for their faith, what do we find Paul and Silas doing? They're singing, rejoicing in God. And I confess that's very much easy for me to say, having never experienced being tortured for my faith. And yet I'm saying it should be true of us all. So what we have seen so far today is that all of our worship should be rejoicing before the Lord. This is a command that we rejoice in all of our service and, and growth and worship and singing to the Lord should be maxed out with this joy. But finally, as we've said week in and week out, all of our joy is to be found chiefly in God himself. All of our joy is to be found chiefly and mainly in God himself. That's number four. Yes, he gives us wonderful things. Yes, he answers our prayers. But having given the command to rejoice, following the typical pattern of the Psalms, in verse 3, we're given the reasons why. Look at verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. That's the first reason. It is he who has made us, there's number two, and not we ourselves. We are his people, that's number three, and the sheep of his pasture. See, we're given the reasons here why we have the greatest cause to rejoice. The first is, he is God. You are not God, friends, and that is a good thing. <laughs> that is, he is God. When we don't understand the things that are happening to us, we should be reminded, Lord, you are the true and living God. I will leave this in your hands and you are trustworthy with it. I will rejoice in you. Not only is he God, but he is our creator. It is he who has made us. All that we have is from him. All of our breath is from him. All of our life is from him. He is our redeemer. It says we are his people. Remember, Israel had not been a people of God, yet God redeemed them from bondage and slavery to Egypt, and they are his people. They became his people, and he is their redeemer. So we now, in the joy of Jesus... 
We can claim we who are not once a people, his church are now the very people of God. He's our God, he's our creator, he is our redeemer and he is our shepherd. He is the one who leads us and cares for us. And friends, if you're still grumbling and griping all the time about your circumstances, could it possibly be that you have not submitted in heart to God's sovereign hand in your life? That you think you can do a better job than God at running your life if given the chance. You wouldn't say that, but you live that way. But the psalmist says, look, you rejoice because he cares for you. He is leading you. We are the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 23, John 10, it's all over the scripture. Jesus is the good shepherd. Remember his voice and follow the shepherd. Finally, the psalm concludes with reminding us of the Lord's goodness, his mercy, his steadfast love and truth. Look at verse five. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. What better reason do we have for joy than this? Jonathan Edwards has a wonderful sermon called God is the best portion of the Christian. And it's from uh, the text Psalm 73 verse 25 that says, Whom have I in heaven but you and there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. Look what Edwards writes in his sermon. And again, this is Jonathan Edwards. You've got to read it like five or 10 times, but uh, just focus in on this. He says, hence we may learn that whatever changes a godly man passes through, he is happy because God who is unchangeable is his chosen portion. Though he meet with temporal losses and be deprived of many, yea, of all his temporal enjoyments, yet God whom he prefers before all still remains and cannot be lost. While he stays in this changeable, troublesome world, he is happy because his chosen portion on which he builds as his main foundation for happiness is above the world and above all changes. And when he goes into another world, still he is happy because that portion yet remains. But how great is the happiness of those who have chosen the fountain of all good, who prefer him before all things in heaven or on earth, and who can never be deprived of him to all eternity." Well, I've said a lot already, but I want to conclude an application this morning by answering just a couple questions I thought you might have about this series and about this text. And so trying to jump the gun. If you, of course, if you have questions, you can come to me after the service, but I'm trying to jump the gun to answer two this morning. First, you could say, Pastor Cody, what's the main hindrance to joy in the Lord then? Well, what's the main hindrance to it? What is it that's preventing my joy? I think you probably know the answer, but the answer is unquestionably the greatest impediment to joy is sin, which draws our hearts away. It's sin. Sin is the greatest hindrance to joy in the Lord. You remember what David said after his sin with Bathsheba when he cried out in Psalm 51 verse 12? He says, after he sins, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He had no joy, why? because he was living in unconfessed sin. And yet when he confesses his sin, he knows that's the pathway to the restoration of his joy. Therefore, happiness does come from true holiness. Second question. This is a big one. What if I don't feel like rejoicing when I come to worship the Lord? Should I just stay home? 
I mean, what, what if I don't feel like it? I mean, listen, if worship is supposed to be rejoicing and I'm just a grumpy Gus, I've just got no such spirit of that in that, in that day, should I come anyway? Should I still attend? Well, I want you to see this. The book of Desiring God by Piper has some wise pastoral advice, I think. He says, don't think that you can't come to worship God unless you're overflowing with joy and delight. You are to see this command to come before him and rejoice like you see all of his commands. Something we desire and aspire to do more and more. So this is what he does. He identifies three stages of movement toward this kind of worship. I'm going to give them to you in reverse order. So that's not a mistake in your bulletin. There's supposed to be three, two, one there. There's the final stage. And that final stage is where we feel in God joy. Right, Because that's, that's what we're aspiring and desiring as these people who worship him. We are desiring and aspiring to joy. So the final stage is we feel in God joy. The free joy of gratitude, wonder, and hope. And we're able to sing with the psalmist in Psalm 63 verse 5. My mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. That is what should be a feast of joy. That's where we want to go. But there's another stage on the way there. The second stage, the middle stage, is where... We taste, but do not feel the fullness of joy. We taste, but we do not feel the fullness of joy. We have a longing, right? Remembering we have the goodness of God, knowing the goodness of God, but it seems like it's far off from us. Again, we see this all throughout the Psalms. There's this joy in the Lord, but there's this longing as if God's still away. And listen, when the psalmist speaks of this, there's pain in his soul as he's writing about this. But hear me, this is a good thing. Even if it falls short of, of ultimately what we want and what God wants and what we will have for all eternity, it is still an honor to God to be filled with a longing and to desire him. It's a step on the way. But then there is the beginning stage, which he says perhaps is the place where all true worship begins. It starts in this stage. We begin with a soul that is barren. We begin with a soul that is barren. A barrenness that scarcely feels any sort of longing whatsoever. It says, I wish I felt some of this, but I, I, I simply don't. And yet, friends, listen to me. The soul there has at least enough grace to know that there is sorrow and barrenness. That, that even if I wish to feel this, I just don't. That's a grace that you know that you should. That's a grace that you know that there's sorrow in that. That too, again, is something we find in the Psalms. Again, Psalm 73, Asaph is speaking about a point in his life where he has this terrible dip where his soul was embittered. He says in verses 21 and 22, thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. What was I doing? Even in this sorrow, there is still honor to God, which calls us onward. If God was not so desirable, we shouldn't even feel sorrow and guilt that we aren't enjoying him more. The fact that we feel it is itself an honor to God. So if this is our experience, if, if we come into this place and we just don't feel any joy, what we're to do is we're to lay hold of Christ and say, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Bless me with the joy. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. 
See, there's much we can do also in word and prayer, even coming together in worship. But in Psalm 73, we see that Asaph got out of the slump. And look how he was feeling this way until he came into the sanctuary. And then look how he finishes in verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside you. My heart or my flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It wasn't until he came into God's courts to worship and there he remembered all that was right. So I encourage you, even if you don't feel this fullness of joy, come together, come anyways, and lay hold of Christ and pray that Asaph's experience would become yours. We conclude in verse five, friends, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Because he is this way and because you and I belong to him, it is only right that we should come before him into his presence together as, as a people of joyful praise. Let's stand as we close together in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, our hearts, we spend so many days in that beginning stage of our souls being barren. We feel so little longing for you, so little at all. We are easily distracted. We are at times overcome by temptations and sorrows and pains. We confess that that is not right. We recognize the truth in these words that you do call us to depart from such misery, to come again to the God at, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore and in whose presence is the fullness of joy. Or there have been periods of our life where you have been far away. Maybe these were given to teach us, Lord, to, to long for you more, to walk with you more faithfully. We don't know. We only say, Father, do not let us go. <laughs> do not let us live joyless lives. It is not our calling nor our heritage when you have promised and even commanded us to have so much more. Father, we come before you unable to fulfill this command, but knowing, Lord, it is you and you alone who can give the joy in the Lord for it is the fruit of your spirit. We pray that you would work in us that which can be worked in no other way that especially those of us who are going through periods of trial, of temptation, of sorrow, distraction, the cares of the world, that you would liberate us, Father. Set us free. Bring us again to the free joy of your throne that we might receive the fullness of grace that we desire, that we remember our inheritance that we have in you, a heritage of joy and pleasures forevermore. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, we love. And though we have not seen him now, we are filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory, which he alone is able to give. Would he be exalted this morning? That all of our worship today, Lord, please, would be pleasing to him in your sight. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Let's sing this hymn in response now together to what we've heard in God's word. And let me remind you to take this time as we also prepare for Lord's Supper. 
um, that the Lord would bring this sin to our minds and confess it. We'd have a period where we're focused on his finished work at the cross, that we would remember the seriousness of the ordinance we were about to partake in. Let's take this time as we reflect to respond to all these things now in song.